Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of Unnamed and Untamed. I'm here with my girls, Sarah and Meredith, and today we have Corey Probst, and she is from the Diet Doc. So those of you who follow Joe Clemensky, the Diet Doc, um, is it just the Diet Doc podcast? That is, right? It's the Diet Doc. Well, we have a few different podcasts. Yeah, okay. Like there's a the Diet Doc. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> really great information. Um, Adam Atkinson's on there a lot as well with Joe. Mm-hmm. So you guys have just really provided a nice platform for coaches to kind of get next level training in the side of mental health and in, in fact, macros and how to be working with clients. And so we wanted to have Corey on today because she is, you know, as coaches, we see her as one of the leading, um, you know, doctors in mental health when it comes to both physique athletes and athletes and people dealing with just, you know, eating disorder behavior, um, disordered mindset around food, coming in and out of, um, you know, prep and extreme dieting, even if it's not prep, you know, if you spend a year losing a hundred pounds mentally, what that can do to you. And we wanted to have her on to just answer some questions to paint a little light and hope for those of you who are struggling with some of these things. And for each one of us as coaches, and hopefully for each one of you guys as listeners to take away something from this conversation today that is going to make a massive impact on somebody's life. And it's not always these huge wins. Sometimes it's this small sentence that like, all of a sudden you're like, you're playing in your head later on in the day and you're like, everything's going to be all right. I've got this little sentence. In my <laughs> right. And so, um, Corey, like I said, we're just so happy to have you on and really means a lot that you were able to, you know, just get on right away and, 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 and provide this value for our clients today. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. All of you. Um, I'm excited for the conversation. Like we were talking about before you started recording this, this is just, it's information that all of us need. And I don't necessarily, I think it's talked about more often than it ever has been. Um, but it, it needs more, it needs a spotlight. It needs more. We need, we need to put it out there to every channel that we possibly can. Yeah. Uh, You know, we've been, so many of us have been indoctrinated into this fitness culture and conditioned in very particular ways to believe certain things. And, you know, it's, it's easy to get sucked into it, um, from a mindset perspective, an emotional perspective, psychological perspective. And, you know, we're swimming in a sea where we're, and I will say, especially as women, um, if you identify as a woman, um, we are, we're expected to look a certain way to be in a certain body size and, and shape and have a certain weight. And that's not going away. (laughs) <laughs> those societal ideals uh it, it's and especially right now as we're moving into a new year and there are all these messages about new year new you and you know the resolutions and get your best body back and all that stuff there's a lot of pressure so hopefully you know in this conversation like you said Sonia we can just shed some light on other perspectives and ways of thinking and ways of feeling so that we can legit live our best lives. Yeah. Not from a place of appearance based stuff. Exactly. And there's twofold. So like as coaches, you do hire us because you have physique goals and we know how to get you there. Like that's, that's, we can agree on that. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not, it's, not everyone is going to come to us in a place where that is ready. A lot of people come to a coach because they have failed many attempts 
And normally when they've failed many attempts, it's like Russian roulette, right? With different dieting. It's like all these weird opposites. Well, this doesn't work. That doesn't work. And, and a lot of women who come to me, men and women actually, um, have spent most of their life dieting or revolving their lifestyle around dieting or it's either one or the other, right? I'm either bulking or I'm cutting or I'm dieting or I'm keto or this wedding and then summer and then this and then that. And I'll even see it true with my clients where it's like, we just did a, like a, a prep in summer and then we're reversing. And then it's like, okay, but in January I have an event. And then also in April, I have, it's like all these, like, we can't always be dieting. Right. And <laughs> Um, when are you, I guess like one way to kind of kick it off, especially with the new year's coming is as a coach and just as people in general, how do we identify when it's a stern goal versus an eating disorder or disordered mindset around training and food? How can we kind of differentiate where clients are at with these different things? Yeah. Well, first I'll, I will, let me just, (laughs) I don't. I don't work with clients on dieting anymore. Let me just put that out there. I did that for many years. And as I, as I learned more (laughs) and started reading the research on the other side of things, on the weight neutral side of things, as opposed to just being steeped in the weight centric research, I I really, well, like most of our clients do, I went from one extreme, yes, diet is the way to do it, weight loss, weight loss will make you healthier, it was very much aligned with weight loss and health, I swung to the other continuum, and I became a certified intuitive eating counselor, right, so I went this from here, all the way over to here, and then for those of you listening, because Corey comes from a very um, like almost macros based, very macros based oh, science. Flexible based dieting. Totally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. And I did that myself when I started competing in 2006, that was very much how I, you know, got into the fitness industry. That's what I learned to do. I was macro tracking. And so as I started coaching people, including the mental health aspects, cause I'm a trained therapist as well. Um, yeah, that was how I approached it. Absolutely. But then just like you said, Sonia, you, so many people will come to you and they have these very sorted, complicated, layered histories of dieting repeatedly and unsuccessfully. I'm putting that in quotes because I look at that differently now (laughs) than compared to before. Um, And you start to see like, You start to, instead of saying, well, I can be the one to have you do this the right way this time, you start questioning, like, is this even an appropriate goal for you? Hmm. And you start to put together how they, in many ways, have aligned health with weight. Like, in order to be healthy, I have to lose weight. That's the way I get to health is by lowering my body fat, becoming a smaller size. And you can get at just by asking the question, like, why? Why do you want to lose weight? Well, to get healthy. And they may give you other reasons too, but that first answer is that's really, really important because the research doesn't show, unless you're on the far ends of the weight continuum, that weight is directly related to health. 
And if you're if you're even using the BMI scale, which is a bogus measure, right? We know this now. Um, the individuals in the overweight category tend to have like higher lifespans, like they're overall healthier, you know, they're they tend to ex like they have greater well-being, higher levels of positive emotion and happiness. Like that's a big deal. Yeah. So to your question, like, how, how do we kind of parse out whether a person is disordered or whether it's a healthy goal or not? First, I think we just have to acknowledge that the goal of weight loss is sometimes not where we need to be going with our clients. And that's part of our job as coaches is to parse that out and have that discussion with them. Like, you know, being able to, to engage in some motivational interviewing and, and really get to the heart of where does this desire come from? Because I know that all of you have probably had clients who, you know, their disordered relationship with food and their bodies began when they were very, very young. <laughs> I have clients who were put on diets before the age of five because the doctors or the coaches or the parents thought, their bodies are too big. They're not okay. They don't look the way that they should. And so now as adults in their 40s, 50s, they are really working through all of those layers of conditioning and beliefs and ideas about what's good and what's bad. So that's the first piece of it. Yeah. The yeah. second piece of it would be to really work with our clients to examine like is what you are engaged in right now is this goal and the behaviors associated with it the the mindset associated with it the beliefs associated with it the ideas associated with it the perceptions associated with it how are all of those things affecting other areas of your life you know so your relationships, not just with yourself, but with other people, your family members, your friends, what's your social support network look like? How are you spending your time? Are you isolating all the time? Are you avoiding outings? <laughs> are you avoiding gatherings? Is your life one of avoidance and sort of rigidity where we feel just very stuck and scared a lot from a place of, are we operating from a place of scarcity as opposed to abundance and are we open and are we curious and are we looking for opportunities to learn and grow? Because if the goal is causing our lives to become and feel smaller, that's a big indicator of disorder yeah. and dysfunction. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I personally relate to that. I mean, I've, you know, have my own struggles with, you know, anorexia and, and whatnot. And I think, you know, through recovery and even, you know, now considering myself still in recovery, that's the question I ask myself is, is this a decision made out of fear or is this a question made out of, you know, abundance? And, and that is what really helps me differentiate between disordered and not. Yeah. However, like, that takes a lot of time to, you know, have that self-awareness to ask yourself those questions. And this is something I, I talk about with clients a lot is if we're dieting, 
we don't have the mental capacity necessarily to even have those conversations with ourselves. Yeah. So a lot of times that work in maintenance and that work not dieting is to give that mental capacity to do this work. Another thing I'll start to see with clients as well too, is it's almost like this, like you're, and I speak from even my own experience, like where it's like, okay, so if I'm so close to this goal and I know that I'm not adherent, that I'm feeling my crap, that I go three days and then I overeat and then I restrict the next day and I'm adding an extra cardio. But if I could just get down to that goal, we'll just die for like three more weeks, just three more weeks. And I'm like, like, we're not even okay on one week right now. We're not, we're not in a good place. And it's like, okay, well only if I get there, if I could just, we'll just push for three more weeks. Like, and it's always just like two more, just two more, just, and then, and then I'll be fine. it's like, what's that going to look like in two weeks? Let's just say we get there, which most likely as a lot of you listening know, when you are on a binge and restrict cycle, even if it's not binge and purge, when you're overeating, even if it's like you're overeating at night and then the next morning you're fasting and then doing your cardio, like that, the binge and restrict cycle, when you are there it is really hard to get off of really hard. And one week of dieting is not going to be beneficial to helping with that situation. No, because you're perpetuating the cycle by the one week of dieting. And there's anxiety yeah. now and there's desperation. Shame. Exactly. Yeah. Desperation and shame. It's hard. Yeah. And those, those sorts of emotions, those very unpleasant, restrictive, tight emotions, those, those occur because we're in a threat space. <laughs> that's not a a nice sort of parasympathetic, like calm, open, receptive, flexible, adaptable, responsive. Like that's not that space at all where we can really make wise, conscious, deliberate, intentional decisions. So if you're noticing it as coaches or just as an individual that you're operating from that space, like you're in a space of scarcity of threat. And it's, it's likely both it's bodily, it's physical, it's biological in your nervous system. And that means that it's also emotional. And that is not a place to make any, like any decisions. So when I'm working with someone who, for example, is they want to recover from this dieting mindset. They want to recover from this restrictive sort of attitude around their bodies and around food. And just, you see it in every, every aspect of their lives too. If they're used to behaving that way, you're going to see it everywhere. Like the default becomes no, the default becomes less, the default becomes lower or more and like compensatory, more exercise, like more is always better except for where, when it comes to food and body. So in situations like that, we just, we have to, we have to take an honest assessment, but we can't necessarily do that unless <laughs> this is the complicated part is we have to make sure the person is no longer restricting and being incredibly rigid. Like you said, Sarah, to be able to operate from this space of open curiosity, because if, if we're in threat mode and we're in protect mode, like there, there's only one thing we're trying to do. We're trying to survive. Right. And so like, 
an, an individual who's in recovery and they're experiencing like a bad body day, for example, their weights, you know, we're restoring weight, they're eating more food, um, they're not restricting anymore. Um, and this still may for them be very, I don't like the word controlled, but it's intentional, right? It's not like free for all, like eat whatever, whenever you want. And that may be appropriate for some people in their own recovery, but it's very much like, oh, okay. Experiencing lots of negative emotions. I notice all of these terrible thoughts about how fat I'm getting and how ugly my body is. And you know, if we come from a fitness and aesthetic and physique background, and we've been involved in bodybuilding, like what have we practiced? <laughs> Literally critiquing every single inch of our skin, our muscle, like we've practiced that. Oh, we're really, we're good at it. <laughs> and so to get out of that mentality is going to take as much practice, as much practice. So we need to expect the bad body days where our minds are just going nuts with how gross we look and how disgusting our bodies are. I, I hate saying this, but I still have them. Like I've not competed since like 2011. I still have them. And on those days, I know like, don't make any decisions about dieting, restricting, making a plan. Don't do that. That is, we, we should never make decisions, important decisions out of a space of fear and desperation when it comes to this stuff. Wow. It's crazy to hear that kind of like laid out, you know, I'm just, I'm, I feel like it's almost like a public service announcement that should go out any reverse diet. Yeah. <laughs> You know, like I'm yeah. not reversing. I'm not, no one, like, everybody who starts with me is getting a copy of this podcast, you know, because I think it's so big because I think one of the hardest things I see with clients is when we are at maintenance yeah, and when we are moving food up and their desperate feeling of losing everything that they've done, everything that they've sacrificed for the past months and the way that they finally look and feel about themselves and the attention mm-hmm. that they're constantly getting about how they look. That's and the right. fear of losing that and the fear of backsliding and the fear of, well, what if I just give it all up and everything I worked for, like those fears that come along with it and the uncomfortability that comes with not chasing scale loss. Mm-hmm. And what is our goal during that time? And how do we measure it? You know, it's like, because we're measuring something that we can't necessarily physically see on a scale all the time. Yeah. If we're not measuring weight, what are we weighing? What are we weighing the quality of our lives by? It's a question I like to ask my clients. If you're not weighing the quality of your life by the number that you're seeing on a scale anymore, what are you weighing the quality of your life by? Is it the, the closeness and the trust and the respect in your relationship with yourself? Is it the amount of self-compassion that you offer when you're having a bad day, when you're experiencing an unpleasant or uncomfortable emotion? You know, is it the amount of in- intimacy that you have with your partner? <laughs> yeah. And self-compassion is one of those things that that's, that is generally not what we're practicing when we are gearing toward a weight loss goal. Self-compassion? 
Like I'll never get, I hear, I've heard this. I'll never get to my goal. If I offer myself compassion, no, I need to be disciplined and hard nosed and I need to be really hard on myself. Well, that puts our nervous systems back in that place of threat again. And, and it leads us directly into shame. If I don't meet this goal, if I don't get to that number, you know, in this certain amount of weeks, like I'm a bad person as, as opposed to taking some other perspectives and asking like, well, what are the other variables here <laughs> besides like, I just can't do it. I need more willpower. I need more discipline. I need to learn to adhere. I, I, I need to change. No, let's look at the context you're in, all the other variables of your life, your genetics, your DNA, because look around you like, no, contrary to popular belief, not all of us are supposed to have the same bodies. <laughs> yeah. Like how crazy is that? We're all trying to get to this very similar look, appearance, goal, and our bodies are not designed to do that. And it's super interesting if you look over the course of time, like go back hundreds of years, through different periods in history, there was a different body ideal. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, you remember Twiggy? Okay, at that yeah. time, women were supposed to be super thin, really angular, mm -hmm. like not have any, like you were a twig. That's what, yeah. <laughs> you were a twig. And then remember Marilyn Monroe? These I was are just all the icons of physique, the icons of appearance. Okay, now she's more like, she's more fleshy, right? She's got curves and she's got hips and she's got bigger breasts, like fuller face. That's how we were supposed to be then. It just, part of the work that we do with clients too is to recognize, look at how you are being conditioned to believe that this is the appropriate goal for you. Yeah, that's a big thing that comes up is just, trying to fit this mold, especially with the fitness industry and the fitness wow. lifestyle. And it's, mm -hmm. I think, you know, I, I hear a lot, you know, from clients, like, I just want to be normal, or I just want to, you know, be normal with food or, and it's like, Whoa, hold up. Like, what does that even mean? So like, what are like, so you, you mentioned like, you know, asking oneself, like, what are we, what's our goalpost? If it's not the scale, like, what are some other questions that you can ask yourself or, or coaches can ask clients to kind of reestablish, like what is normal for them or, or what is, what do they want normal to be for them? Yeah. Well, I, I love that you mentioned normal Sarah, because if we actually look at society right now, <laughs> normal is not five to 10% body fat for a female, <laughs> right? right? And huge shoulder, bolder shoulders and very, very lean and muscular. That is not normal. That's less than 1% of the population. Normal <laughs> is what's not shown in the media we're not seeing normal if we're participating in media. Now go out in the world, you know, get out of your fitness circle and like, go see what normal is. The problem is that we've also been conditioned to believe that fat is bad 
And we have all of these like associations with larger bodies. We're in the fitness industry and I'm, I'll speak for myself too. I was in this, <laughs> I thought this way. Like I would go, I'd literally go to restaurants and I'm not afraid to admit this anymore because I know I am not the only one who has thought or does think this way. And especially as a coach, working with people who want to lose weight and working with people in the fitness industry, right? And even seeing the disorder too, but not seeing it in myself, even though I'd recovered from anorexia. It's like, it's insidious. I'd go to restaurants, I'd be eating, and I'd see individuals sitting at their tables in larger bodies, eating the meals they're eating. And I'd look over at my partner and I would say, I need to drop my card off at that table. Sick. So judgmental. So judgmental. So part of this, I think, Sarah, is not just what are the questions we ask our clients, but how do we get more in touch with where we are at? What are we believing about people? What are we believing about what health means? <laughs> what do we associate with health in terms of appearance, fatness, body size, weight, BMI? Because we, we live and are steeped in this culture too, not just our clients. Like we're all swimming in the same sea. So these sorts of questions, like what is my relationship with my body? If my body were a person, what would that relationship look like? Is it respectful? Is it kind? Is it trusting? Do I listen to it like it's a human? <laughs> these are all the things we want in our human relationships. Our bodies are organisms, they're living, they're breathing, or do I look at it as an object? Am I always focused just on its outside? What it looks like, how it appears? Or am I, am I considering like how it feels on the inside? Because the other thing that we, I think, become accustomed to and practice a lot of is avoidance of emotion. We avoid emotion, especially those negative ones. We're always all, we have an aversion to feeling bad. And something that I really work with my clients on, and this very directly relates to disordered eating and eating disorders, diagnosable ones, is learning to be with those emotions, embracing them, listening to them, um, understanding them as providing of important information for us. So you know, something I say is, you know, this is less about always trying to feel better and more about becoming better feelers. Yeah. If we've spent our lives dieting, oftentimes the diet, the food restriction, that preoccupation with food, that preoccupation with appearance and body has become the scapegoat for uncomfortable or unpleasant emotions. When, when something like that comes up, we feel it in our bodies rather than like turning toward it. Like we would an individual who is sad, for example, our friend feels sad. What do we do? We go to them. <laughs> 
we learn not to do that. We turn away from our bodies and we focus on something else that is that feels like we can control it. Food, body. <laughs> and so it's not, we're not coming from a place of care and compassion at that point. We're coming from a place of demand. And it's like a coach saying, do this. This is what you do. I don't care how you feel. This is the step you take now. Almost and there's like many of Go ahead, Sonia. I was going to say, it's almost like as you're saying this and correct me if I'm wrong, just this is what I'm hearing is that like, it's almost kind of like when you come home from like a bad day and your cat like gets in your way and you're like, kick the cat. You're like, get out, it's your fault. It's like, you're feeling yes. these emotional, these feelings of uncomfortability. And this is even something kind of that I might end up saying as you're saying it, it's like, you're looking for fault in it. And it's almost uh-huh. like, it's very easy to be like, the reason is because you're quote unquote fat or you're letting yeah. yourself go or you're like, those are the reasons you're not comfortable in this moment is because of your physical appearance or the way you physically feel. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy to go down those roads when you grew up in an environment or you're living in one currently and have for a long time that promotes those messages. You're fat, you're ugly, you know, your body is not okay. You need to be different. So that it can become our default. <laughs> yeah. And that blaming of like, it's, it's so natural and normal for us to want to find the reason to get to the answer. Like our brain, our minds don't, they don't like open loops. We hate uncertainty as humans. <laughs> so the faster, you know, when something comes up and it's uncomfortable, the faster we can find a solution and get to the answer that's super normal for us to do that, but it's reactive. (laughs) It's not, um, often wise kicking the cat, blaming the dog. Like, no, that that's not the answer. You might feel better momentarily, but then, you know, there's guilt on the back end. So now you have whatever emotion showed up that needs you to pay attention to it. And now, and then you do the reactionary thing as opposed to responding to yourself kindly, kind of turning towards yourself, listening, just being with and not having to solution solve immediately. You kick the cat and now you have the guilt of kicking the cat on top of the original emotion. And if we don't have the skill to be like, whoa, ooh, this is uncomfortable, but I don't need to fix it. I don't need to fix this. This nothing's broken. Nothing's broken right now. Point is we need to be able to develop those, that sense of intelligence and mindfulness around discomfort. (laughs) If we're going to heal, if we're going to recover, if we're going to live from that space of abundance, as opposed to scarcity. Wow. And as much as I think we perpetuate it, we become the model for fixing. Yeah. Yeah. We become, we engage in what's called the writing reflex. So our clients come to us with discomfort. I can't get myself together. Like I binged again. Okay. Here's what we need to do. We go into fix it mode, right? We're going to save the day. And that's not, I mean, it's natural because we don't like to see other people hurting. We don't like to see other people struggling. And yet 
like we are perpetuating and helping our clients practice something that over the long haul and in an enduring way is not going to help them. Right. Yeah. I mean, as coaches, like, I mean, the more I coach and the more people I work with, I see us more as the guide to Mm -hmm. help someone answer those questions. Because like you said, I can't, I can't fix it because I don't know, like, I don't know what it is for you at its deepest layer. And that's also where I'm going to say, you know, Hey, have you ever considered, you know, talking to someone besides myself about this? Because it's like you said, people started diet when they're dieting, when they're five years old, like it runs deep. That's right. Speaking of that, I wanted to ask you about this because I've seen this with two clients now and I dealt with it a little bit more coming out of prep mm-hmm. where it's almost like a nighttime eating disorder. Have you seen this where it's like waking up in the middle of the night and then eating kind of not being completely unaware, yep. not necessarily being hungry, but just dealing with this. Um, what can you like dive into that a little bit for me? <laughs> I've read some research on it and it's really interesting to me. Um, but I kind of want to hear from a therapeutic standpoint, like what is it? How do we see it? What are, what are, what is it? So I'm certainly not an expert on night eating syndrome. So you'll just put that out there. Yeah. First. Like I haven't specific, done right. Well, I'll tell you what I've seen because I'm not a researcher. I'm a clinician. And so I'm, I, I don't necessarily like diagnosing. Does it have a purpose? Of course it does. But I like to look at every aspect of a client's life. And I have worked with competitors who are actively prepping for a contest, who are engaging in this. And I will say personally that, yep, I did it too. I knew I was, I wasn't asleep. I wasn't sleepwalking while I was doing it. Like I was perfectly conscious. I was like, I'm going to have this chicken with peanut butter. That was the thing I always had when I would get up in the middle of the night. I was hungry. Like I can say that honestly, like there was legit hunger there. I would have a snack before bed because I can't sleep when I'm hungry, (laughs) but I will tell you. So like, and two, like I said, competitors, um, I've not seen it with anyone else. I've not seen it with anyone who is not dieting and who is at a comfortable weight, who is eating adequately. I've not worked with a single person who does that and is eating adequately. So that's, I mean, in my estimation, pretty darn important. (laughs) Um, And the way that I like for my clients who are dieting and prepping um, and they're engaging in this, Of course, they're oftentimes going to, I don't have enough enough discipline. What is wrong with me? Like, and for me, it's, it's working backwards and it's like, we need to eat more adequately. Like this is, this to me is clear. It's so clear in my mind as the clinician and or coach that you're not getting enough nourishment. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now to your point, Sonia, if they're like, I'm not hungry. I'm, I'm skeptical of that. If they're in a caloric deficit, (laughs) they're dieting. I'm, I'm not going to not believe them, but I want to check more into it. What are all the variables here? Like how quickly are you losing weight? (laughs) Because, and just these, like when, when, when else does it happen that you feel like, um, desperate or preoccupied with food? Um, but if they're like an emotional standpoint, 
absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Although I, I typically see that the most is when I'm, when I have clients having trouble with food and they are like in a maintenance, it's not about the food. It's mm-hmm. about something that's going on in their life. Um, mm-hmm. and to which I say, Hey, listen, cause they always will, they'll have the binge. Um, and then it's always, you know, they are horrible. I am horrible. Um, my body is sick. I am sick. I am disgusting. I'm like, Whoa, it's yeah. not about you. It's about what's going on around you and maybe how you are not processing it well. And so it's coming out in this one, you know, activity, which happens to be food to nurture that good, good feeling, you know? Yeah. And, and the way that I look at it, Meredith, is this is not a bad thing. Yeah. They're trying to protect themselves. Exactly. You know, they're, they're engaging in a behavior that they know will help themselves shift in some way and feel better so kudos to them oh my god like you're being proactive right and at the same time let's look at other ways of being with yourself and notice like what are the thoughts that that creep up what are when you start to experience the urge to binge i look at an urge oftentimes as if you're eating adequately, an urge can be biological, of course, and come from the body. If you're eating adequately, and this is where the lines get blurred, but the urge is often a thought. It's a belief that pops up. Like if we imagine it as a thought bubble. So your clients getting really close to and acquainted with, here's how my mind works. You know, when I'm feeling drawn towards food and a binge, what's going on? What's going on up here? What let's write down all of the thoughts that come up because this is about self-awareness, Sarah, like you said earlier, this is, I want to know myself inside and out. Like what are my tendencies? What am I most vulnerable around? Who are the people that, that I'm around that will like promote that sort of like tightness or sense of restriction or just uncomfortability um, what am I doing? What are the behaviors that I engage in that, that promote that sort of behavior or thinking? What are the contexts that I'm in? <clears throat> Is it certain, like when I scroll on social media, for example, like how do I, how does my body register when I'm uncomfortable? And then if we get even like more granular, okay, how do you know you're experiencing anxiety? inside your body how does it let you know if you're listening like what are the symptoms inside does your heart start racing do you start to feel like your throat close in and get really tight like do you start to get hot and sweaty okay what about the outside if i were to ask your best friend or your partner how you act what you do like what your demeanor gets like when there's anxiety present what would that person say <laughs> okay get really snappy I put my head down. I don't give them eye contact. My lips are pursed. My, you know, fists are clenched. My whole body changes like red in the face. I get like very quiet. I don't want to be around them. And so I, all of our clients, I think all of us need to be able to know ourselves so well that we can say these things like, and know them like that. Like I can rattle all of that stuff up off about when I start to feel shame when I start to feel a sense of desperation, when I start to feel anxious, here's what goes on in my head. Here's what goes on in my body. 
and this isn't one coaching session. <laughs> we have big jobs. And we need to have people, like Sarah said, that we can refer our clients to. Yeah. You know, if if we if this is beyond our scope, that's important to recognize as well. Yeah. It's oh. I know. <laughs> it's it's a lot. Um, what we also, I will say, <clears throat> you start to notice the types of thinking that your clients engage in. Is it real binary thinking? Just very all or nothing, black and white. Do you notice that they they make a lot of assumptions? Like they fill in the blanks about things. And like Sarah said, it's our job as coaches to be like, okay, wait, hang on a second. Like, you know, from an outsider perspective, I'm, I kind of see this happening. Are there, can we look at all the variables together here? And this is part of what motivational interviewing is, is it's not giving our client the answer per se, but it's asking the appropriate questions so they can get to other perspectives and see that they have other choices from which they can respond. Um, typically, if we're if our clients are operating from this place of threat, scarcity, rigidity, desperation, what's underneath it is they don't see that they have other choices. And so sometimes it's just asking that question, like, hang on a second, like, Let's just breathe. And sometimes in our coaching sessions, this is what we need to do. We need to help them learn how to regulate. So they can do that on their own when we're not around. But then to ask like, I wonder if there are other choices here that we might consider. Like, let's make a big list of what they are. Not all of them are necessarily going to feel comfortable for you because of course they're used to operating in a certain way for a really long time. But let's just see what they are. I think that's an interesting point that you brought up um, and that I can tell a lot with clients is when you can tell they've been very rigid for a long period of time. And when you offer them flexibility of some sort, you can almost pick up the panic and the fear, mm -hmm. um, you know, just, just a small thing, like say, Hey, let's, let's just have a meal with your family untracked, you know? And it's interesting is when I pick up on that, I do lean into that. Um, I'm not like, okay, well then you can track it. I'm like, okay, well, we need to investigate that. We, yeah. this is definitely the road we need to go down <laughs> um, because yeah, we need to practice that. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's really interesting that you said that. And then I really like how you, you know, talked about picking up on all these things that it's not necessarily about them and that it doesn't mean that we need to avoid these things. If anything, we need to dive into them deeper and we need to know ourselves better. Um, mm -hmm. But so much of, you know, fear and the limited, you know, mindset can prevent us from doing that. And I think that's where, you know, leaning in on your coach and allowing a coach to guide you into those uncomfortable places, mm -hmm. you know, is really helpful. Yeah. What you're describing, Meredith, is like, if we're looking at this from just a therapeutic perspective, and that doesn't mean you're a therapist when you're doing it. This is just yeah. biological, physical, relational you're helping, what you're doing is you're co-regulating with your client. So when you say, I see that fear that you're expressing, 
that isn't necessarily something they were probably, they probably got when they were younger. Yeah. A lot of our clients, us too, have come from backgrounds and families of origin where emotion couldn't be expressed, wasn't acknowledged, not acknowledged kindly if it was acknowledged, right? I mean, I remember my grandpa telling me when he saw me crying, I'll give you something to cry about. He also said, and I know people, other people have heard this, um, you're such a good actress. (laughs) Just totally minimizing the emotion that was present. Um, But what, in many ways, what we're doing is we are, we are helping our clients to experience these repairs in like in and fractured relationships and ruptures that have occurred like you know we're helping them in moments where they may feel disconnected to come back to this sense of calm and space and regulation like we're helping them to calm their nervous systems um yeah it's just we have a really important job beyond the bowl. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I have a question and I don't know, it feels, it's like, I, I'm probably not going to ask it the right way, but you know, say someone, you know, we're spending all this time, you know, dedicated to doing this work, to not dieting, to, you know, asking, you know, those hard questions are we ever able to go back to the physical? So I'll say this is how I answer a lot of these types of questions, Sarah. It depends. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Obviously not all of our clients are the same. They're all very different and unique and the ways they grew up are varied and, um, the ways and what they learned is different, how they learned it. You know, I was, I struggled with with an eating disorder prior to competing. And so I guess you could look at me as one of those people who didn't have to give up the goal of (laughs) competing or having a physique goal post eating disorder. At the same time, I can't say that I wasn't disordered during that time. Right. And it wasn't until I made the conscious choice that I wasn't going to diet, i.e. restrict food. It wasn't until that point, in addition to learning how to view my body from a more functional perspective, as opposed to just from a, from an appearance standpoint, Um, and again, there's so many variables to this healing. Um, but it wasn't until that point at which I can say I really recovered. (laughs) Um, yeah, I, I think that you're smart, super intelligent, Sarah, and saying, I'm not sure I'm asking this question in the right way, because I do feel like when we say, if we find ourselves in that territory of disorder, do we have to give up physique goals forever? Um, That 
that question doesn't necessarily lead us into like openness and spaciousness and curiosity. It's like that it's leading us down the path of scarcity, especially when we say give up too. Mm -hmm. And I like to look at things from the perspective of <clears throat> intentionality and deliberateness and um, in our, in the service of optimal well-being. Um, so if we look at it from that perspective, we might look at it as an I choose to right. and not give up, but I am choosing to let go of that, that goal, that ideal, and I am choosing to pursue this goal instead, this ideal, and then getting really, really clear developing a ton of clarity around why <laughs> yeah, and yeah. doing the reflective processing. And this is ongoing. It's not like I do the cost benefit analysis and one time and then I'm done. <laughs> like this is an ongoing thing because we change, we evolve, we grow, we learn new things um, to understand like what are the costs of continuing this? now, two months from now, a year from now, if I have the idea, like, I think maybe I want to compete and diet again. Um, okay. What would the costs be? <laughs> yeah. What would the costs be not only to my recovery, but to my body, to my family, <laughs> to my other things that you know, the other context, other areas of my life that are super important to me. And we may be able to say, I, I think I can, it's worth it to me. But we don't want to do that from a place of desperation. We don't want to make that decision because one day during our recovery, or there was a moment during our recovery when we feel really, really fat, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you can't answer that question until you're there and you have to be here for like, you have to just, I think, I mean, I know I personally get into trouble when I start getting into timelines and things like that. So yeah. I, I think that's a big one. We have to be present. We have yeah. to really be present for ourselves. Yes. I will say, so I retired in 2011 from competing. I was like, I want to focus on other things in my life because I recognize like there's a high cost. There's a very high cost. And at the time I was, you know, I was working on my PhD, I was working and I was prepping. Those were the three things that I was spending time on in my life. I didn't have a partner, wasn't dating, wasn't doing any of that. <laughs> I didn't have the energy. I had zero bandwidth for that stuff. And I didn't, I didn't want to have zero bandwidth for that stuff anymore. So this is where the reflection comes in. It's like, what do I want in my life? <laughs> What's really important to me? What are the values that I have in my life that I'm not living into right now? Okay, so I recognize these things and this is where, you know, it's an iterative process because I can recognize it. I can see it, but that doesn't mean I'm, doing anything about it. It doesn't mean that I'm 
like integrating it into my life yet. So 2014 is when I moved to California. Okay. That was very stressful. (laughs) Moving from, this is an important part. Like when you're working with your clients, like look at where the stressors are. Okay. We want to control things when we feel stressed. So moving across the country, running a business already, starting a new business, building a brick and mortar like facility, trying to get clients, working on my PhD. I'm like a year away from completing my dissertation and defending it. I'd gained some weight. Heaven forbid I gained some weight. (laughs) Um, But that didn't feel good. I didn't feel good at all. And for some reason, (laughs) during this time, I'm like, competing would be a good idea. Let me add that (laughs) to my plate. (laughs) Yes, we're chuckling because everyone sounds right. Like that was a dumb decision. Um, (laughs) But if that was your default to run to, you know, that to escape everything. There you go. Yes. And it was, it was right. Default. Why? Because it's known. It's familiar. It felt easy. Right. Mm -hmm. I knew how to do this stuff so well. Like I know how to track macros. I know how to follow through. Like I know how to be really disciplined and rigid. Like some of us who are very perfectionistic, like that's a talent. (laughs) We're good at it, but it can come to bite us if we're like, overly intense about it. It's like operates on a sliding scale, right? Operates on a continuum. I don't want to necessarily like cut perfectionism out of my personality. Like, let's just get rid of that. That's not the idea. It's like, how can I use it to my advantage in a healthy, thriving, abundant way? But so I dieted for about six months. And then (laughs) there was a moment with a friend of mine. I was actually, I think, what was I doing? Oh, I was I was at one of Lane Norton's camps to speak and I was in my hotel room with a friend of mine and she was talking to, because she, she had thought too, like, well, I'll compete with you. She was talking to her daughter. And I think her daughter at the time was like four or five something. And she, the daughter asked her like, so mommy, when are you going to come home? And she told her, and she's like, when you come home, can we go get ice cream? And my friend was like, just kind of like a caught like a deer in the headlights because it was a moment like, I'm going to say no to going and getting ice cream with my little girl who misses me. And so it was that moment, like, and we talked about it and we both agreed in that moment, like we're done really over an ice cream and it just like it just hit me right in the heart um and so this is why I think Sarah it's iterative because we can get so hell-bent on getting to that outcome that we're not necessarily letting other things in and we don't see the impact that what we're doing is having on our our well-being, our happiness, our openness, our 
exploration or discovery, you know, actually living life. Um, and <laughs> so, yeah, for me, it was just, and I, I never would have experienced that had I not been going out and doing other things and being in relationship with other people. Um, like that moment wouldn't have come. I would have been isolated and, you know, sitting by myself again and dieting and being hungry and all the things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's amazing how you don't necessarily know what you don't have Mm -hmm. at moments in your life, you know? And I think it played a big part into like my previous relationship with my daughter's dad I had a lot of anxiety and around food and I was not fun to be around. Mm-hmm. Everything was anxious. Well, I just felt anxious a lot or always tracking and on my phone tracking and doing my macros. And if we go here, this is what we get to eat. And I couldn't go out and not track. Yeah. It was all like, you know, or if I did, I felt like I would like binge eat, you know, and then I would go back and log it to kind of like reassure myself that it was okay. Like these weird things that just made it really unenjoyable to be in a relationship with somebody who was going through that. And I couldn't identify it. And, um, I think it, once I finally did it, I started realizing, you know, how much of an impact it does have, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, especially for parents. Um, exactly. I'm a, I'm a mom and it's, it's hard. It's actually ultra aware of like, what is my daughter seeing? And, you know, I, and now, I mean, I I've always been very aware of like my daughter watches everything. So it's always been about, I need to make sure I'm eating enough protein and mommy needs to make sure I'm eating enough vitamins and that, you know, versus I can't eat this and I can't have that. And I have, you know, even with my kid, if it's always been like, even when I was in prep, like mommy, take a bite. I would mostly always take a bite, even if I had yeah. to cut something else out later. Um, with the exception of kind of like things that just like hurt my stomach. I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, cause mm-hmm. they do, they watch everything that you're doing oh they're little sponges they're they're taking it all in and they're taking in what they don't see too so mommy eating separate meals all the time from the family even if you're not like they see that they don't like it's just it's in their minds it's discrepant like that doesn't match that how come and so yeah So it's the covert and the overt stuff that is so, so impactful. Yeah. I have moments from that. I remember as a child, my my mom, like body checking and like, she, she, like, if I told her this now, she'd be like, what are you talking about? Body checking? Like, she didn't know that language. She didn't know that she was doing that. It wasn't super conscious for her, but I remember her like grabbing like the back of her um and then there were moments where and I saw the look on her face when she did that and it was kind of a look of disgust right and then I remember her saying things like you and Kel my sister have such pretty legs and she had varicose veins and so in my little girl mind I was like I didn't feel good about that because mommy didn't have pretty legs too. I didn't want pretty legs. It was just, even now sharing that, like it's emotional. Such a huge impact that these sorts of um, body focused, appearance focused comments have. And I do, you know, Sonia, you mentioned in the very beginning about the compliments we receive as our bodies are changing 
but in only one way. <laughs> like yeah. as we get leaner, as we get smaller, as we appear more muscular, um, we get so many different comments and people asking us what we're doing. And um, I remember lots of times getting comments about people, I want your arms. <laughs> so what does it mean when our arms change or we gain some weight and we gain some body fat and, you know, we don't look the same as we used to in our clothes or in tank tops. Yeah. My worth, my identity, stuff like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So this is what I'm about. I'm about appearing a certain way. I have to uphold this certain look. These are why, um, and I think a lot of coaches, I have met a lot of coaches and talked to a lot of coaches who like genuinely want to help people, but they're like, no one's going to respect me because I don't live in a really muscular, lean body. Yeah, we actually just talked about that on a lot our, our last podcast a little bit too, like how it is really hard, especially if you have to put on weight in this industry, if you're, especially if you're like healing or your body's just not responding to feel a sense of, well, I don't look like this person. Therefore, my value to add is less than this person, even though I have a lot of clients who are coaches. Well, not a lot, like five coaches who are much leaner mm-hmm. than me who are, who are coaches in the industry. And they don't know half the things I know. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I mean, it's just like, they don't even know. They just happen to look the part, you know, and some of that's right. genes, you know, and some of that's like, you're getting coached and we've been working together for a year and building. And, you know, it's like, so, and some of these people don't have the dieting history. You know what I mean? Right. Those anomalies yes. that are like, I was an athlete my whole life. And then I went and ate a lot in college, like 3000 calories a day, only trained. And yeah. now I'm coming to you and I'm dieting on 1900 calories. It's like, well, that's nice. <laughs> Great. I'm happy for totally you. Totally different experience. Totally yep. different. Yeah. Yeah. I think too, this is something we, you know, can watch for with our clients and even with ourselves is, um, like conditionality of things. So I won't do this unless I get to this point. And I noticed this with competitors that I worked with, which was, well, you know, it's my off season. So it's totally fine that I'm gaining weight, but only because it's my off season. (laughs) And I know I'm going to get lean again later. That was the only reason it was okay. Well, we need to, we need to look at that. We need to question that. Like, let's dig into that a bit. Is that the only time it's okay for a body to change? (laughs) No, it's not. Yeah. And what does that say about, what does that say about changing bodies in general? Yeah. I think there's a lot of mindset around, um, someone, oh, they let themselves go, you know? Yes. Yes. Well, associated with letting yourself go, being lazy. I'm yeah. not disciplined enough. I eat. They like don't know what they're doing. Yeah. They're obviously, you know, doing so, like, oh, just eating garbage or all this kind of stuff. It's like, yeah. you, we don't, and, and Corey, you know, us very specifically, we specialize in working with a lot of people who are coming with hormonal issues. So like mm-hmm. thyroiditis and coming up birth control and just PCOS issues where 
you will see people gain weight on very low food. Yeah. Oh yeah. And they're yeah. doing, you know, this, they're doing all the right things. They're not overeating. They're not lying. Nope. They're not lazy. They're not under training. They're, they're, they're in a, a hormonal disruption, you know, and, and, and gaining weight is definitely one of those things that may need to happen. It's yeah. not always based on body fat percentage. Sometimes it's just based on, you know, what your body's doing with the food, what it's choosing to do, what your body's telling you, you know, an acceptance of that. And that doesn't mean you're not working hard, you know? That's right. Yes. I had a client, she won't, I don't think she'll mind me sharing this. Obviously she'll stay anonymous, but she told me, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I just want to look like someone who works hard for the body that they have. I hear that a lot. I had a, like, I had to take like 10 minutes before I responded to that because yeah, it, it broke my heart. And then I was like, I was like, you realize we all work so hard to be a human. <laughs> like we are all working hard right now. Like that doesn't have well, a, what does that actually like look it. like, yeah. Let's do like, What does that actually look like? Cause you can, I know some people like the most athletic physiques out there, like Olympics, like they don't have the same bodies as like a physique bodybuilding competition, but you mean to tell me that they don't work hard because the girls, you know, maybe have a thicker waist because they have a core of like a freaking rhinoceros. Like, yeah, no. For the mom that just had triplets, like she's not working hard. Like yeah. You know. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I actually just like made a post on that. I have a stay at home mom and she has four kids, you know, busting her ass, you know, like, Okay. So she doesn't have it anyway. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm totally on board. With Disconnecting working hard from the amount of exercise or weight you're lifting and the weight that you have on your body. Yes. This is like, what am I weighing in my life? Again, this coming back to that discussion, like I work really freaking hard on taking care of my clients. I am very dedicated to that. I work really freaking hard on, you know, maintaining my, a, a, a nourishing relationship with my husband. Like <laughs> I work hard on that. And it takes like, if you want that, it takes effort <laughs> when I am training. Yeah. I work really hard on that too, but go to any, I love what you said, Meredith, go to any like powerlifting competition, go to a marathon, go to like a trail running, like endurance race. You're going to see every type of body, (laughs) large bodies, small bodies, super lean bodies, medium sized bodies. Like they will run the gamut. It's really funny too. So I just got back from Mexico, Corey, and you know, we're by the pool. And there's people from everywhere and every walk of life. Right. And it's funny because this is like, you go there and like, as women, you're in, you're talking to other women and stuff, everyone, it's like, people will say things like, oh, I, you know, like somebody's like it to me and like in great shape. And it's like, oh my God, I want your legs so bad. Your legs are incredible. Or like two of the girls that we were with this like different spectrum. She was like, I just want less of a butt. It doesn't fit my body, you know, or she's like got a small frame and her booty's just like, like 
just big, you know, like a big, like full booty. And she's like, it's just uncomfortable. It feels too big. It doesn't feel like it's my body. And on the other side, you know, one of the other girls were with this, like, I'm going back and getting a BBL. And it's like, that's what I want. I want to have more fat put in there. And, you know, it's like, oh, it's like, oh, and more, and, and okay, we can like thin this out. And so, so it's like, everyone just wants kind of what they don't have, you know? And it's like, if only I was here, I would X, Y, Z. And this must feel so good to be here. Yet that person's uncomfortable wishing they were here. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, again, I'm sitting at the heaviest sit weight I've sat at in a, basically since I was like pregnant with my daughter, you know, and it's like, and it's weird because it's like, oh, if only there were this. And then the same time people are like, oh, I want your shoulders or your back or your legs. And you're like, oh, wow. Like, okay, this is a goal for, (laughs) I'm a goal for somebody. Somebody out there is wishing that they had me as a goal. And that's every single person listening to this podcast. That's right. And it's not just based on physical. It can be like, I want that person's relationship. I want that person's life. I want that person's car. That person's this. We're a goal for somebody. And at one time, this was the goal. Mm-hmm. Whether it was, I, I, I don't care being the weight that I'm at right now, but I just would do anything to sleep through the night. I remember saying that during prep. There you go. That's what you're you know? weighing. The I would really your just, sleep. Anything yes. to have a sex drive again. And then it's like, <laughs> oh, really? Anything? You know? <laughs> Well, and to to your point, like what I'm comparing right now in my life, because I used to compare my body when I was competing and my body now, I don't do that anymore. Like there's been an evolution there because I've been practicing comparing different things, comparing worthwhile things. Like what is the quality of my sex life right now? Well, I'm having a shit ton more sex than I ever did in my life than when I was competing. Like, I didn't want to do that. I didn't even have time for relationships then. That was like complete, that was off the radar. Yeah. Um, I actually have the energy to want to go do things, not just train and prep my food. Like, I feel more motivated. Yeah. I have more weight. I'm having a regular period, like my well overall well-being is higher. So I'm comparing all of those things that actually mean a lot to me. I had the energy to date and find a partner and get married and move and have it not be a complete burden. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can live my life. Yeah. Yes. Different at different times too. So the seasons. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So Corey, you've been absolutely amazing. Um, where can people find you? Kind of give us the lowdown of where people can find you. I think we're going to have to have you back on another episode. I would love to. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, kind of give your spiel. Like, where can they find you? Are you accepting clients? All that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am accepting clients. I, you know, I created a program that's specifically geared towards diet recovery and food psychology. So I do offer individualized coaching for that. Um, I do have a number of online courses too, specifically related to body acceptance, body liberation, just body image in general. Um, and then an emotional eating course as well um, called We Eat How We Live. And that can all be found via my Instagram channel, you know, in my bio link, which is at the Diet Doc Life. That's where you can find me on Instagram. And then our website is the dietdoc.com and I can be found on there too. Awesome. I'm going to link all that in the show notes. Um, I've definitely referred clients to some of your podcasts and courses before. So, um, 
great resources for everyone. So thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much, Corey. Um, and if you like this one, be sure to leave a rating and review and we'll see you next time.